A lot of people who pay attention to the news these days think that the world is about to end, and for good reason. But what if I were to tell you that the world already ended, just about 3,000 years ago? Find out exactly what that means on this episode of Delicious History. Welcome back. My name is Dave Militello. Delicious History is a weekly podcast designed to teach us not just how history has affected food, but how food has affected history. For more information, you can check out our Instagram and Facebook pages, both at Delicious History Podcast or our website, delicioushistorypodcast.com. If you'd like to support the show, we do have a Patreon, and you can find that at patreon.com slash delicioushistory. I want to start out this episode in a very different way than I've ever done before. Uh, This week, something very important happened in my personal life. I lost someone who was very close to me throughout most of my life, and although she wasn't blood-related, she very much played the role of a grandmother to me. Her name was Rachel Marzouk, and she passed away from pancreatic cancer. The reason I bring this up was because Rachel had a strong influence on me as a person both as a child and as an adult as well. Her generous spirit and overall goodness was an inspiration for all those around her. And that spark of goodness and decency that she passed on to her children and grandchildren, well, that's the reason that our families have been close for generations. Her story was very interesting because she was born into a Jewish household in the country of Egypt. She got married in her teens to a man named Amon, someone who was also very close to me as well. Together, they had all but one of their children while still in Egypt, though they had to leave because of the persecution that was being done to Jews at the time there. They ended up leaving their home country as refugees and went to France, eventually making their way up to upstate New York, where they had their youngest child. Rachel Rachel was an incredible woman. She was able to speak multiple languages fluently and was probably one of the most naturally intelligent people I've ever met. Immediately understanding advanced concepts, yet still holding on to many of her traditional values. What she instilled in me and my sister was understanding the importance of food, and really, that's the reason that you're listening to this podcast right now. It was from her that I learned that food is more than just sustenance, but rather something that can convey thoughts and emotions, love and feelings of family. To Rachel, food was her way of showing feelings that Honestly, she sometimes found difficult to express other ways. I remember one time my family visited Rachel and her husband in Florida where they had a condo, and my father said that we were going to take them out for lunch. She said, okay, just let me make a quick little snack before we all leave at least. When we showed up at her door, I can say that I've never seen so much food on a table at once. She obviously had no intention of us taking her out to eat and somehow whipped up a giant meal that included an entire turkey. Because of the strong influence that she had on my life and way of thinking, I wanted to dedicate the next subject of our story of delicious history to her. Since she was an Egyptian Jew, I figured it would only make sense to talk about one of the most important food-related stories to affect both groups at the same time. The Fall of the Bronze Age. With pretty much every episode we've done so far, we've delved into a specific food item that had a specific effect on history. Everything from honey to rice to coffee has been touched on and discussed. 
But this is probably as good as any time to talk about something that we may not think about when we think about food-related history. A lack of food. As humans and really living things in general, we need food to survive. In fact, it's one of the principal drivers in society as a whole. And yes, we do live in a society. We can think about the governments and the things that they do for us today, such as offering us protection in the form of police and military, fire departments in case of an emergency, or even things like infrastructure and roads and bridges that we use for transportation. But one of the absolute most basic things that we need to have as a society is food. Many archaeologists and anthropologists point to the combining of forces to create a food system as one of the major reasons for people to come together at all. But what happens when food just disappears? And what happens if that food disappears just about everywhere at the same time? If that sounds like an apocalyptic setup, then you understand exactly where we're going today. This is definitely going to be a multi-part episode because of just how complicated and complex the story is. So this week we're really going to set up the story itself so that moving forward we can have an understanding of what we're dealing with and who we're dealing with. To understand the Bronze Age, we have to understand two things. Bronze and the people and kingdoms involved at the time since there's a big possibility that a large portion of the people listening have never heard of these groups before. When we think of ancient history, many of us might go back to Rome or Greece while having very little idea of what happened for thousands of years before that. When we think of ages, you might think of us living now in the digital age or the internet age, depending on what you call it. Many of the ways that we divide history now really only divide as far as decades at a time. But the farther back you go in history, the larger these epics or eras become, as generally technological or political changes were much slower than they are now. Of course, we know about the Stone Age, which was defined as human beings using stone in various forms of tools and weapons. As time goes on, we start to learn how to use metals. The first major metal to be used, both because of its abundance in the earth as well as the ease of producing it, was copper. The big problem here, though, was that its best feature was both a blessing and a curse. That being how malleable or how soft and workable it is. On the one hand, it made it very easy to work with. But on the other hand, it also meant that it wasn't quite as strong as what we have today. For example, sure, you could chop down a tree with a copper axe, but because it's so soft, you'll find it warping and disfiguring relatively quickly, needing regular maintenance or replacement. This was how things were going for a while until someone realized, hey, you know what? If you mixed copper with other metals, then you get a product that's substantially stronger and yet relatively easy to work with. And that's where we get bronze. You can get bronze from mixing copper with a relatively small amount of either arsenic or tin. Now, if you heard what I just said, you might be thinking, wait, isn't arsenic poisonous? You bet it is. Although arsenic was relatively easy to find in that time period, it was quickly realized that people who worked with arsenic on a regular basis had a strange habit of dying. So it was decided that tin would be the better element to use because it's generally harmless and still has the same effect on bronze. But there was also a problem with this. You see, copper was found in large amounts in the Mediterranean basin. See, copper was found in large amounts in the Mediterranean basin 
in particular in the island of Cyprus, where it actually may have gotten its name. But tin was something absolutely absent in the known world at the time, which was the Mediterranean area. If you wanted tin in large amounts, you either had to get it from modern-day England or Afghanistan. Both of these locations were extremely far away, especially if you had to consider the fact that not only did they not have automobiles or airplanes, but even roads were something difficult to come by at the time. Bronze was such a huge advancement in human technology at the time that it was worth it to go through all the trouble of transporting tin to the Mediterranean. This did two things. First of all, it led to trade going from the far reaches of the earth into the Mediterranean on a regular basis, which led to the exchange of ideas and cultures. Secondly, it made the world much more connected, and globalization became something for the first time in our history. The world became much more interconnected, with not only communication between various nations, but trade on a large scale as well. What's going to be so interesting about this story moving forward is understanding how long ago this was, and yet how modern many of the themes here will seem. The Bronze Age started around 3300 BCE and lasted until about 1200 BCE. In all honesty, the absolute dependence that people had on tin at the time very much parallels the way we view petroleum in our modern day society, as well as the idea of globalization playing a role in the lives of even the average person. Because people became much more interconnected, they realized that certain nations became more efficient at producing certain things, or that they produced higher quality versions of what had normally been produced domestically. At first, this meant that luxury items, of course, were passing hands of the wealthy, but even regular everyday items, such as construction materials and food, were now making their way on an international market. In fact, it was very common to look at other countries as being possible buffers in times of drought or food shortages. This was especially true when it came to grain, since this is something that's so easily traded over long distance and time periods. You're obviously not going to be sending produce from one end of the Mediterranean to the other, but wheat or barley could easily be transported and sold over long distances. At the time, diets were much more simple than they would later on be, and grain really was the main food product of most peoples throughout the region. Although it should be mentioned that olive oil was another product within the same vein of easily transportable foodstuffs, that was commonly sold alongside grain along the Mediterranean region. Also, having bronze farming equipment led to more area able to be plowed and treated during a particular growing season, leading to larger harvests and therefore having people leave the world of subsistence growing and going into commodity growing of crops, which was perfect for the now larger worldwide market. But besides farming equipment and other types of peaceful technology, Humans are going to human, and of course, bronze became a huge part of warfare. From making stronger wheels on chariots to tougher shields and swords that could shatter copper versions, the Bronze Age also brought with it some of the first large-scale warfare that humanity has ever seen. So this brings us to the political side of the story. Who was involved here, and what were they doing when our story begins? Well, let's start with the major guys. By far, the superpower of the Bronze Age, and that which most of us know today, was Egypt. There really was no competition in this regard, since the Egyptians not only had massive wealth, but they also had some of the most advanced weaponry of the Bronze Age, that included their famous chariots, as well as their bows. Egyptians were intensely devastating on the open plains, since those archers on chariots would absolutely rout any sort of battle formation of their enemies very quickly. 
One of the reasons why Egyptians were able to maintain such a strong military and economy was because of the Nile River, which not only irrigated and fertilized the soil, but was also extremely predictable. Once Egyptians understood how the Nile worked, they were able to work and rework the land to produce massive amounts of food. In most other areas at the time, people would work land for a few seasons and then move elsewhere because they depleted all the nutrients, doing this just to have enough food to survive. Egyptians, on the other hand, almost always had a large surplus of food that they were able to trade and use those proceeds to fund their military conquests. That and, of course, the huge gold reserves found in the area of Kush, an area of the southern part of the Egyptian empire at the time, which had some of the largest gold reserves in the area. The only real competition that the Egyptians had during this time was that of the Hittites, who were located in what is modern-day Turkey. While the Hittites were powerful in their own right, once their territorial interest went south enough to meet up with Egypt's territorial interests along the eastern Mediterranean, you knew something was about to go down. What's so interesting about these two powers is that up until this time, conflicts between different powers were regional and really considered skirmishes at best. Once the Egyptians and the Hittites finally decided to throw blows, it was literally the biggest conflict the world had ever seen to this point. This was known as the Battle of Kadesh, which took place in what is today modern-day Syria. This was the largest chariot battle of all time and really took place at the height of the Bronze Age in the mid-12th century BCE. At this time, both of these powers were immensely wealthy, and their weaponry showed bronze technology at its pinnacle. In fact, it's estimated that between 20 and 30,000 chariots were used during this battle, making it the largest chariot battle of all time. Now, I'm not going to get into all the details of this battle because it really doesn't have much to do with our story, but it's interesting that it did lead to the first peace treaty of all time, since it apparently ended in somewhat of a draw. I mean, I mean technically, that's not really what happened, but both sides said they won, so if, if that happens, you know, it's pretty much bad for both of them. But regardless, this would later become known as the Eternal Treaty, or the Silver Treaty, and stayed in place until the fall of the entire era. Now, besides the Egyptians and the Hittites, there were a number of other powers, though of much lesser importance than these two. While the Hittites and the Egyptians controlled most of the eastern Mediterranean, either directly or indirectly, the Mycenaeans were the main power within the European portion of the Mediterranean. These were the major traders of the time, since they were located on many different islands, such as Rhodes and Crete but they were also the industrial power of the Bronze Age civilizations. They would take in raw materials such as copper, tin, and wood, and then sell the finished products on their trade routes. On the far east portion of the known world, there was the Assyrians, who were mostly funded by their trade of tin to the Hittites. Other than that, most of the powers consisted of single cities or relatively small groups of cities that were themselves often under the control of a larger empire. Still, many of these smaller kingdoms became very prosperous in their own right. In particular, those along the trade routes for tin, grain, oil, or other commodities. Something I should mention, of course, is that when we're talking about the Bronze Age civilizations, what we're really talking about here is the civilizations of the Middle East and Mediterranean. Remember that for these people, their world really ended west of Sicily and anywhere east of modern-day Iran. Of course, that doesn't mean that there was nothing else going on in the world at the time. Uh, we know, for example, that China very much had a lot going on, first with the Ma Zhao culture, and then with the more centralized power of the Shang dynasty. Also, this was the time that the Indus Valley civilization in modern-day India was around, 
as mysterious as they were. I mean, I know it sounds terribly Western-centric, but what we're talking about here really involves the Bronze Age of this part of the world, the Mediterranean and the Middle East. This was a time when the Egyptians were building the pyramids, when the Proto-Greeks were getting themselves into trouble that ended up turning into their myths, and empire was really something that went from a hypothetical idea to a definite reality. Art, literacy, and knowledge were thriving. But as societies became more complex, they started to depend on their own complexity. What I mean to say here is that many of the governments at the time set up what were known as command economies. Essentially, command economies are set up in such a way that the government controls every single thing that happens within the economy itself, meaning that every bushel of grain or every kilo of bronze produced was accounted for and often controlled by the government itself. This worked out great for a variety of reasons, such as when governments would stockpile grain in years of plenty just in case of possible droughts in the future. Also, it helped to control things such as inflation because the government would oftentimes set up the prices for certain items that would be sold at the market. But this takes us to another weakness of the civilizations of the late Bronze Age. Everything was so complicated and depended on so many other people that it really turned into a house of cards. Sure, everything stood up straight and looked pretty, but, but it became very obvious that if the winds of fortune were to blow in the wrong direction, the whole thing would come tumbling down. That command economy, while allowing the kings and pharaohs to have more control over what was going on beneath them, also required a large number of bureaucrats, artisans, scribes, and so many other types of people to run it efficiently. If anything at all were to happen to that structure, all that work that they've put into that economy and society as a whole would really be for nothing. Another issue is that of the military. Remember how I mentioned how the Egyptians and the Hittites liked to use chariots? Well, in a lot of ways, you could say that the chariot riders of that era were much like the knights in medieval Europe or the samurai in East Asia. These were people who had to dedicate their entire life to this craft, often being a multi-generational legacy because of how difficult it was to learn and how much effort and expense went into putting into the construction and maintenance of the equipment they used. Even today, we don't understand how Egyptians made their bows, but we do understand that it took multiple steps and years from the beginning of the process to the end. If something were to happen to disrupt the supply chain and the education of future craftsmen, you'd basically have to start from the ground up. With all that said, things were going pretty good for the Mediterranean region during the Bronze Age. Until it didn't. One of the scariest things about the fall of the Bronze Age is just how quickly everything happened. When we think of the fall of civilizations, we might think of centuries of decline, which was definitely not the case when it came to this part of the world at this time. It literally just seems as if one day the world just said, you know what, these guys have been around long enough. Two things that made civilization work so well during this time was also its weakest points, and that was the trade of grain, oil, and tin. Because the world was so connected at this time, any sort of interruption in this trade would not only be devastating, but something that would immediately be felt at everyone at once. And that's where we start our story. Next week, we're going to start our story at the end and work our way back to figure out what exactly happened. Less than a century after the epic battle of Kadesh, cities that were once at the pinnacle of their power and prosperity lied in waste, with many burned to the ground. 
nearly every political power that existed in 1200 BCE no longer existed within a generation. Construction projects, international trade, and even the written word nearly vanished in an instant. How did this happen, and what were the consequences? We'll fill you in on next week's episode. Until then, this has been Dave Militello, who reminds you that we all make our own history. So make yours delicious. Delicious.